Doctrine of Discovery is a series of paper bulls from 1452 to 1493. And for you who don't know what paper bull is, a paper bull is simply a decree issued by the Pope. So in the 1400s, you have to keep in mind the Pope was the was considered the most powerful man on the planet. Today, in 2020, we say the president of the, the United States is the leader of the free world. In 1450, it was the Pope. And he was the, and, and, and his words were considered to be um, from God. So when he issued something, it was from God. And I kind of um, shared this two weeks ago, but just to refresh us, in 1452, Pope Nicholas V wrote, invade, search out, capture, Vanquish and subdue all, 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 all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and other enemies of Christ wherever placed, and, redu and reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and to apply and appropriate um, to himself and his successors the kingdoms, dukedoms, counties, principalities, dominions, possessions, and goods, and convert them to his and their use and profit. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and 50 years later, Alexander VI, the Pope, he wrote to Christopher Columbus and Henry the Navigator. And he, and I, I don't have it up here, but he gave them words, a decree from God to go out, search out anyone who is not white, anyone who is not Christian, they are not people and you can do whatever you want with them. And that's why Christopher Columbus was led, lost at sea to land on that continent with millions of people and to say with all seriousness that he had discovered America. Because these people aren't people. The same letter was given to Henry, the navigator who started the Atlantic slave trade. And it's estimated that 12.8 million Africans were shipped across the waters. So how do we, how do I summarize that? I summarize that as these paper bulls given to um, English white men that whatever lineage you find not ruled by Christian rulers, those people are less than human and the land is yours for the taking. In fact, you must do this in the name of Christ. So even as we think about this question, is white man, is, is Christianity the white man's religion? Even though we are in America in 2020, we have to see that the, how this has even shaped, um, like we are not our, our own island that has not been influenced by this right here. It's all a, a continuous thread. And this allowed European nations to colonize, dehumanize, and enslave the world in the name of Jesus Christ. So if you are one of these people who are not considered a person, a, a human being created in the image of God, and you have a, a white missionary come up to you and talk about, hey, believe in this man named Jesus. How are you going to receive that? If you have seen your family slaughtered and your family completely ripped apart, are you really going to serve the God that is oppressing you? And I want us to think about the, the disconnect and the passive teaching of this how, I don't, I don't know what school y'all went to, but I'm from Memphis, I went to Shelby County School, and all throughout my own grade school history, I always taught that Christopher Columbus was a great explorer and he founded America. And we kind of tell the story about he founded America, but he was greeted by these Native Americans. <laughs> but we don't connect that he can't find something if they are already there, right? And then he should kind of go his own, and it's like one paragraph about the Trail of Tears 
when, when all these millions of, of, of Native Americans were just dismissed, but it, how we are taught even history in school idolizes and leads us to admire the founding fathers, and it leads us to neglect the pain and agony of others. So we have to even see that we have been passively taught, passively wired to not see everyone created in the image of God. We have been passively taught and wired to, in a sense, see white people or white history as, as superior to the history of others. And if racism is anything that dehumanizes groups of people based on racial membership, then the doctrine of discovery itself is systemically racist to its core. It's systemically racist to the core. And this doctrine of discovery led to something called Manifest Destiny. I remember learning about this also in all of my social study classes. And Manifest Destiny was the ideal that Americans were destined by God to govern the North American continent. And I believe this Manifest Destiny is what birthed the, the ideals or the statements of God bless America. Um, America is is one nation under God. Um, I pledge allegiance to a flag. Manifest destiny has come from the doctrine of struggle. <laughs> and so, just let me give us a little uh, recap of history. Um, I know y'all were probably going straight A students, but let me just um, refresh y'all real quick. <laughs> so, King George um, drew a line down Appalachian Mountain and he said to those early um, colonists that um, they no longer had the right of discovery of the land west of Appalachia. And, and the colonists here wrote back to King George. And they wrote back to King George, since he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of, of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages. And this letter is signed the Declaration of Independence that was signed on July 4th. And we celebrate this letter to this day. And in this letter, um, as you can see, the, 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 the highlighted parts in the Declaration of Independence, we, this country, name Indians, Native Americans, as merciless savages. This was the ideal, like this was the narrative that was talked about non-white men. They are, they are, um, they are savages. And when I see this, I had an instant trigger of my past trauma. Because I too, as a black man in Memphis, Tennessee, has been, have been labeled as a savage. Quick story, I, I grew up um, straight A student. I was at a public school, Wooddale Middle School, went to safest school, um, a gang activity started um, to rise. My mom being the good, loving mom that she was, said, I don't want my son joining a gang. It's, but these gangs surround my son. So she took me out of this public school and put me into that private school. And just like that, I was my completely real shift. I was always around black people, and now I'm around suburban, um, rich, upper-class white people. I wasn't a bad kid, but I did not know how to assimilate. I didn't talk the way they talk. I didn't dress the way they dress. Um, what was funny to me wasn't funny to them. And one day, I'm never going to forget this, this girl. Um, she slept. This white girl slept. You know, I was in seventh grade, no kids, you know, like they um, play like that. And she ran in the classroom. And class started, and I sat behind her, like, I'm going to get my leg back by the time right. <laughs> and the teacher started teaching, and this girl out, out of the blue um, said, Oh my God, Sir Gregor, leave me alone. 
And I'm like, I'm taking it. No, what you talking about? <laughs> She's like, Miss Henry, can you tell him to move, please? He's bothering me. The teacher says, so Greg, I'm tired of you. Get up and move. Instantly, I felt attacked. I felt alone. I felt I got to defend myself. I said, I'm not moving. I'm, I'm sitting here taking notes. As you can see, I have done nothing wrong. You know what? I'm tired of you, Sir Gregory. Get up right now. I snap. I stand up. Man, who y'all talking to? I did nothing wrong. I'm not moving. I have done nothing wrong. She's the one who slapped me. They called the security guard. The security guard come and grab me, take me to the office, take me to the principal office. The principal, he, he's talking to me. He gets my statement. He goes back to the classroom. And he comes back and he says, what did you do? I said, I did nothing. He said, they are in there scared for their lives. They said, you are a monster. And I'm like, I'm 13 years old. If, if, my, if my white 13-year-old friend does the exact same thing I do, he might be called someone who just in need. He's going through something. I was labeled a monster. And from the core, from the foundation, from the roots of this country, we, this country has always had this sense of calling, in my eyes, non-white men savages and monsters. Next slide. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. We all know this, this is the Constitution of the United States of America. This is the beautiful thing that, that this country is proud of. Justice and liberty for all. A few lines later, just the very next section is written, representation and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the, the several states which may be included within the union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole person of free persons. But this excludes Indians and three-fifths of all people. In the United States of America, the Constitution, which is still in play today, after this beautiful paragraph that um, every president to this day still um, recites, it says that to, for a state to be taxed, it's going to look at pretty much all of the white men. But we're going to not even look at Indians and three-fifths of people. For you who do not know who they are referring to as three-fifths of people, they are referring to African slaves. They, African slaves, were three-fifths of people. That's why we can hold them as slaves. They aren't created in the image of God. So how do I, so I translate after reading that, the Constitution saying we, the white European males of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union of Europeans, establish justice for ourselves, ensure domestic tranquility for ourselves, for the common defense of Europeans. As, as a black man, I'm not, like, I'm not angry at anyone, but I cannot just, I find it difficult to just continue to say, oh yeah, I love the Constitution, I, I love the Pledge of Allegiance, I love the flag when I know the, the origin and when I know that the, the founding fathers, when this was written, did not, this was not talking about me. This is what is. And next slide, please. And this really, this right here really threw me off. So we know it said that Abraham Lincoln, 1863, freed the slaves in the Emancipation Proclamation. Thank, thank you, Abraham Lincoln. You was a great white man who cared enough to end slavery. But in 1862, before he signed this decree to end slavery, he brought five black abolitionists to, to the White House to discuss how can we, when I sign this paper to free the slaves, how can I get all of the four million African slaves out of America to go live in Panama, South America? And he said in that meeting, you and we are different races. It is better for us to be separated. 
And one of the four black men agreed with Abraham Lincoln, but the other four black men said, hey, no, this is our country. We are Americans. We are here. We helped build this country. We built this country. Um, we are Americans. You cannot just kick us out like that. We are staying. And as I learned this through information, it's even, it, I continue to see this same current thread of, of America really in its, in its birth was not for non-white people. And even after slavery ended, we still kind of see, uh, uh, you know, Jim, Jim Crow era where black people were openly um, targeted, lynched, Several harmful things happen. But beyond the doctrine of, of discovery, what has been and is the role of the church? Just a couple more slides, and we're going to break up for some more discussion. Right. So, pre-1700, the the, volume, the narrative of, about slaves were they were savages and slaves and were not people with souls, so they were not objects of evangelism. Post-1700, um, after much debate, this was like the talk of the day. Um, should we try to convert slaves? Do they have a soul? Um, and after much debate, they came to believe that they could um, be saved, and it was the Christian duty to do so. But some scholars also believe that um, different denominations only took this only took this stand to keep up with the numbers, because the Methodists they were the first ones to begin to preach to slaves, and they even um, taught free slaves um, how, how to be preachers. And it was these free black men who would go on these circuits, they would go and they would preach um, a a gospel of hope. And, and, the, and the Methodist numbers just, just took off. So the Baptists and the Presbyterians were like, oh, sure, we got to keep up. Okay, now let's preach to the slaves so we can add to our number. And, but, but before preaching to slaves, it was, it had to be codified in the creed that just because you are spiritually free, that does not mean you are physically free. The freedom of the soul did not mean freedom of the body. And, and I mentioned this to you a couple weeks. Um, and I mentioned this to you a couple weeks, but there were days called slave Bibles that they were actually published books. It wasn't just, oh, let me um, try to make my own Bible. No, they were actually published and sold um, on behalf of the of the society or the conversion of Negro slaves. And, and, and the slave Bible was select parts of the Bible, and they removed portions such as the Exodus story that would inspire hope for liberation and emphasize portions that justified and fortified the systems of slavery. And just so I can just even let y'all in into my world a little bit more, I um, had a conversation with an older white man. He, he met well, but he said, hey man, I read a book and it told me that every slave master wasn't me. Like, um, it's, it was just one slave master. He, he taught his slaves how to read. He, he taught his slaves the Bible. Like, come on, like, every slave, like, yes, there were some bad people who, who owned slaves and did that. And I'm like, um, just because one person was nice enough to maybe teach someone how to read, you still don't see that you did not give this person the dignity. You didn't view this person created in the image of God. Like they're still disgusting and not true. And so why is Christianity the right man's on religion? I'm about to give you the reasons that they said for slavery. Not not what I'm saying is the reason why people shouldn't be slaves. This is this is how they defended themselves. So the biblical reasons for slavery was Genesis 21, Abraham, the, the father of many nations, he had slaves. Um, in my, in my um, 
rebuttal to that was when we think about slavery in America, oh, when we read slavery in the Bible, our mind goes to slavery in America. But when we think about slavery in, in the Bible, it has nothing to do with the slavery that we saw in America. The slavery that we see in America is more so indentured um, servitude, and it usually was only for a, a short time. And it was usually, you became my, my servant, my slave, when you became indebted to me and couldn't pay it back to me. And if you um, had a family, and even though you were free, your family still was um, was under my care. So now we you have to work out another deal for, for your family to be free. And even though you were a slave, you were still treated with the respect and dignity of being a human being. The other idea was slavery was widespread throughout the Roman world. When Jesus, when Jesus walked this earth, there were slaves everywhere, and Jesus never spoke out against slaves. So why are you trying to speak out against slaves? Just be quiet and just preach the gospel. Just stay in line. And my um, critique to that was even when Paul and both Jesus walked this earth, Paul wrote Ephesians where, where he said, um, slaves obey your masters, right? But Paul's where Paul was writing this specific letter to a specific people, he was writing it with, with the specific um, purpose of teaching everyone in the context of being a Christian, from a king to a slave, from rich to poor, how to live out this Christian walk. He wasn't agreeing or, or justifying slavery by not saying that. He was saying, hey, I know this is your current circumstance. This is how you are to follow Christ and live out the truth of Christ in your current circumstances. The evangelistic reasons for slavery, um, people said, slavery removes people from a culture that worship the devil, Practice witchcraft and sorcery. Slavery brings heathens to a Christian land where they can hear the gospel. Slavery is God's means of protecting and providing for him inferior race. So, hey man, you should be happy that slavery happens because if not, you would still be over there in Africa worshiping the devil and worshiping witchcraft and all types of sorcery. And again, this, this goes to the ignorance that we all have been um, shaped by to believe that, uh, that pretty much European white men founded the religion, the personhood of Jesus, and now they were the ones who gave it to the whole Africa. And that's why the past two weeks we spent time to see how no Christianity, the beliefs of Jesus, Yahweh, the worship and praise of, of of Judaism was in Africa way before it got to Europe. And the European men, John Calvin, Martin Luther, who we still talk about today, they theology, their doctrine was shaped by these African church fathers. So this right here is an ignorant statement, but again, I want us to see how we have passively been taught and trained to think. Because history has always been taught to us from this one perspective. So I feel like I just told you a lot in a little time. And I don't I can't read your mind. I can't read your heart. So right now I just really want us to break up in groups um, and just and just kind of process this out loud uh, together. Um, and I just want to just remind us like this is a, a grace filled uh, space. Um, you know we we all come from different backgrounds, but I want us to all have the freedom to, to ask those tough questions, to ask those ignorant questions, um, but to just process this out loud um, together. So first question, man, what are your initial thoughts and feelings as you reflect on the past? And do you believe the past of our country has an effect on our present, how or how not? And I'll be back up to Um, um, 
and wrong thing that raises a problem. It's another thing to look at your history of this to get everything that I love. All right, let's kind of bring it back all together. I said, y'all can kind of stay where y'all are, but then just kind of turn back around because we're going to break back up after this slide. Thanks, Mr. Ducal. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. I didn't say nothing. Thanks for coming. So you said that. And then I wanted to talk and you were like, hey, just. All right. I think. All right, so we had some great discussion. And now, getting back um, again to the question. Getting back again to the question. Christianity is a white man's religion. Uh, many of you probably have never heard this thought, have never came up in your mind. You have never thought this question. You're like, oh, I'm a Christian. We're all one in Christ. Just, I don't see color. Let's just stop. But for many um, people, and I can only speak for what I have experienced um, as being black, for many black uh, men and women in this country, um, this has been a prevalent discussion. This has been a real debate. So just to start off at the top, the top of this, the nation of Islam. Who can tell me what the nation of Islam is quickly? Nation of Islam? Uh -huh. What you say about? Who can tell me what it is? The nation of Islam is uh, Farrakhan, I don't know, they believe that uh, they actually teach hatred against whites. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, nation of Islam, they were Back in the 60s, they trained. They were one of the most powerful, influential black groups in the world. They also known as they are rookies. Several different gangs were from the Islam. They supported them. Um, one time, um, they tried to hit Washington, D.C. So believe me, blacks teach you just as well as whites. <laughs> So the nation of Islam started, I believe, um, I think around 1920 or 1930, but it really became popular by their leader who was titled the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And when you see nation of Islam, you might just think, oh, they're Muslim, they, they practice Islam, but they practice, like they practice praying five times a day, but their core teachings had nothing to do with, with believing in Allah. They had nothing to do with practicing the truth. Their core belief was, like you said, it was hatred against white men. But I would change it from just saying hatred against white men. It was a it was a fight in the midst of being oppressed. It was out there in the streets we have been oppressed, we have been, or we are not being protected, we are not considered citizens, so we are coming together and, and we are forming this, this thing that we can be proud of, something that gives us dignity. And they did say, uh, Malcolm X was one of their um, most popular figures, and they said that he would stand outside of the church, the black church at two o'clock, and as everybody was walking out, he would stand on the sidewalk and say, listen, y'all just been praying for this white Jesus for three hours, and now y'all back on the streets and ain't nothing changed. Y'all been in there praying to this white Jesus, and y'all come back outside, and these white men are still attacking y'all, and ain't nothing changed. Yeah, we gotta stop being weak, and we gotta, um, so, so this is our response. This is how we are going to fight. This is how we are fighting for dignity. This is how we are standing up for ourselves, the nation of Israel. Muhammad Ali, he um, was one of the most popular figures in the nation of Islam. He said the exact same thing. He grew up by, by the name of Cassius Clay, grew up in the Christian church. And in this Christian church, 
behind the baptism pool was a picture of white Jesus, a white Jesus, blue eyed, long hair, white Jesus getting baptized. And y'all, this is the most common. If, if you Google Jesus, every picture is white, blue, like, you know, so it's always portrays a white man. If I think we all can look on the map and know Jerry, Jerry Brown, I don't think Jesus looked like that. You know what I mean? I ain't saying he looked like me and black like me, but I know he didn't look like that. But so, but subconsciously, a lot of black people, um, men and women, wrestle with this, this whole identity. They wrestle with this thing. Everything I see that's beautiful on TV and the news is white. Even as simple as walking through the grocery store and you think of angel cakes that look on Debbie's next being white and, and, and devil cake being black. Hmm. That's, that's not, you might think, oh, there's some devil cake. Ooh, I love the devil cake. I love chocolate. But just the, just the underlining, um, I have a close friend, um, very, very dear to me. So, um, I get a phone call one morning, 5 a.m., I get some text message. Got some suicidal texts. I love you. Live a happy life. I'm gone. I wake up five o'clock in the morning. Like, hold on. I'm on the phone, and my dear friend calls me later that day, crying, saying, "How am I still alive? I just tried to kill myself, and I'm still alive." I'm like, "What in the world?" I meet up with them, and I'm talking with them, and they have a lot of past hurt. But something that they said was, um, "There's no love in this world for black women." She says, everywhere I go, I'm not beautiful. Every, and this, and my friend, she's beautiful. She's a beautiful woman. But she said, I'm always called pretty to be dark. I've never been just called pretty. I'm never, oh, you're beautiful. I'm always beautiful to be dark. And she just began to tell me just the long, just the long going, just personal internal trauma that she dealt with that, that many people on deal um, that that are black. Am I am I beautiful? Do am I worth something? Every time I look to try to be successful, it always seems as if they are the ones who have the life I want to live, and I'm and I'm nothing. And the, the Black Panther Party is is similar um, to this. They. They are, they were taught to me in school as a radical terror group. But if you ask somebody who knew Black Panthers, they would tell you that no, Black Panthers started because police were coming into our neighborhood and terrorizing us. So the Black Panthers said, we have our own guns, we don't need your protection, we're going to protect our own community. The Black, the, the Black Panthers saw that, that there were, they were in a poor community so kids were going to school hungry. So they came together every morning and made eggs and grits to feed everyone so they would not go to school hungry. But when, when they were talked about in the news, they were considered a black radical party. And I don't agree with the nation of Islam. I don't agree with Muhammad Ali. I don't agree with um, everything that the Black Panthers did and just, just everything they stand for. But I do know that what they were doing, they were doing what anyone here would do. They were fighting for Genesis 1.26. They were fighting to say, I am created in the image of God. I have been stripped of dignity, my identity, and I am now reclaiming that any way I can. Martin Luther King differed from Malcolm X. Malcolm X talked talk bad about Martin Luther King at one time. He said, you are just trying to be friends with them white folks. We cannot be friends with them white folks. We have to fight for ourselves. Martin Luther King, we, we still respect him. Up until the day, he was saying, hey, um, this is not right. This is not how God claims. They both were fighting for dignity of, of, of the oppressed, but they all did it in different ways. And so, um, I want us to quickly, it's, it's 9.43. Those who have babies can leave at 9.45, and we're going to just stay and, and discuss until 9.50. So if you have kids and you need to go pick them up, um, feel free to do so. Um, but I want us to 
just 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 leave with these questions. Talking about what good did these group do for the oppressed where the Christian church failed? If anybody was to be the one who give dignity, it was it is to be the church. Okay, I'm just gonna say this. Um, this is gonna probably take about I'm, I'm discussion time, but I really feel like this story is needed. I'm a youth pastor. I don't know if y'all see the youth or if y'all see, but it's it's kind of this gap. It's a gap between poor um, black students who they come through YLM that they get picked up on a van, they come to church. They don't that their parents don't come to church. And there are a couple of youth here in, in our church. Um, they are members of our church, but um, but not necessarily a part of this youth. And I think it's easy to just, it's easy to just be like, oh, black people, white people, oh, these white people racist. Y'all don't want to be around these black people. I don't think that's the case at all. I think there are a lot of more um, um, just, just things that kind of cause this gap. Um, I think it can be because we don't offer enough programs. It could be we don't offer um, the, the type of programs that you are used to sending on your child to. But even as I have a daughter now, and I was thinking, I mean, my wife was talking about, man, we want the best for her. We want to send her to, to the best school. We want to have her around um, these people, and we want to shape her this way. And I was thinking, would I want my daughter being influenced by it? Like, I had that same question. And when I first became the youth pastor here, I was like, it's, it's this one child, I'm gonna, um, this person's gonna be named this. But it's this one child, I'm like, this boy. I, I try to, I'll keep it neutral. Try to say it more. This, this child is bad. And every time this, this, this child came in youth group, I always felt it's always him. I do not want him a part of my youth group. I'm trying to build this big thing. I'm trying to bring us all together. He's gonna be the one that just keep us out. I don't even want my child against um around this person. And then I took him on one day. And when I took him home, his grandma immediately came outside and cussed him out. And when I say cussed him out, I don't like I heard my grandma cuss, but it was always like a little hint of love in her. <laughs> and she cussed him out like he was somebody on the street. And I was like, hmm. That's weird. Went back to pick him up again one day, walked in, um, and I just began to do like a wicked thing. And the more I get to know this one child, the more I know his story. And what I've learned about his story is he lives in a house with eight other kids. Um, they all have different dads. His dad, he didn't know until he was about 12. And when he finally found out who his dad was, he was so happy to build up a relationship with his dad. And he kept calling his dad. His dad got tired of him. And his dad texted him and said, you are blocked. I cutting you off. I don't want nothing to do with you. And my dad died when I was seven. So I just grew up with this pain of longing for a dad. So I can only imagine the pain of not being loved, not being wanted by your dad. I began to just keep looking at his family life. I found out this past Christmas that he has not received a Christmas gift from no one in his family for the past two years. I bought him a little body wash thing. He was with me when I bought it. He said, hey, can you go home and wrap it up and give it to me on Christmas? And I just began to see all of the hurt, the pain, the trauma. So even now, when he comes into a youth group, Instead of seeing a monster, a pet, little boy, I see all of the traumas, the pain, the hurt, the crying out for love, the crying out for help, um, for dignity, to, to feel better. And it's still hard, right? It takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of conversations with him, but because I see what has happened, I can now work to see what needs to be undone so he can't really flourish in life. And as we think about this conversation, I I truly believe that the that the ending, I don't have 
three steps, like go and do these three things. I don't have that, but what I want us to leave here with is, man, we cannot, uh, I, I love how she put it, she said, we are in the same river. Like the river has never stopped. We are in the same current and there has never been something that has truly stopped and we have not really undone what has already been done. But even as a church, we, we still try to go forward with this, oh, we're all one, like let's just be peaceful, let's just be peaceful. We trying to jump to, to true healing without working through actually grieving and lamenting. So um, that's our time for discussion. I'm just gonna pray for us real quick, if y'all don't mind. And, um, and then if y'all can help me to just, just pack up each other's and the back and get ready to go. Dear Lord, I truly just thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this time. Lord, as we continue to process all of our emotions, our thoughts, I pray that, Lord, you lead us to a true repentance. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you um, call us to cry where we need to cry. Lord, call us to fight for justice, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we just don't feel bad about the past, but, Lord, that we... Um, be your change agents, Lord, that we um, be the ones who truly seek um, unity, um, Lord, that we truly see to, to see right all the terrible things that have been done. Lord, I just thank you for being the God who promises to always be with us. Lord, be with us now, even now as we go into worship. Lord, we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, pray. Amen. 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 Appreciate y'all.